0: Hello, and welcome to the Kosher Conversation, a Star K media production. This is your host, Hanania Jacobson, and I want to give you a brief introduction to today's episode. Today, we'll be talking with Rabbi Simcha Wolensky of the OU. I asked Rabbi Wolensky what topic of kashas is he passionate about, and he immediately replied, oils and margarine. We got so involved in the topic that it's going to be a two-part series. This week, we'll talk about oils, and next week, we'll talk about margarines and hard fats. Let's jump right in. Welcome, Rabbi Smolensky. Good morning. Morning. Okay, so you have the honor of being the first non-STAR-K employee to join us. And so I can say that even the people at the STAR-K would be interested in you telling us a bit about yourself.
1: Wow, interesting. Thank you so much for the opportunity. So uh, I'm currently serving as Senior RFR, Senior Field Representative for the Orthodox Union Certification, based out of Chicago. And um, in my role with the Orthodox Union, I have kind of specialized in the field of fats and oils to a large extent as well as a number of other things and um, it's I've been actually had I've had the pleasure of collaborating with with the fine folks at the star K over the course of many years actually going way back into the early 1990s when Rabbi Rosen from the star K was uh, in his final year in st. Louis Missouri when I when I started getting involved in Koshris back in uh, st. Louis so I have a long connection with some of the Star K people.
0: I see. Yeah, we had Rabbi Rosen on recently, actually. Uh, so you you were in St. Louis then? You were always in Chicago? How did, how did you find yourself where you are today?
1: So I, I worked in St. Louis for 10 years and was brought to Chicago in 1997 to join the staff of the Chicago Rabbinical Council. And I worked with the Chicago Rabbinical Council for about eight years and then transitioned into the OU at that time.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, and you've been with the OU since uh, the early thousands, it sounds like?
1: About 14 years now with the OU.
0: So I'm just trying to get a bigger picture. So you've been doing Kostris for about 30 years now, 40 years?
1: So uh, technically, I started working in Kostris doing hotel certification for the VOD of Denver. I grew up in Denver, Colorado. And uh, while I was in school in Denver, Rabbi Moshe Heisler... Was running the VOD of Denver and um, I was kind of drafted to work for the VOD doing hotel supervision and that would have been back in the neighborhood of 8c around 1985 84 actually 84 85 he needed he needed guys that could do the night shift and so uh I kind of got drafted
0: Shiva uh-huh. don't know the difference between day and night I guess
1: well, they they have some liberties, I guess. And and the the two in the morning dishwashing run wasn't such a big deal when you're you're young and mm-hmm. and hungry.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. And so you just always kept a hand in it since then.
1: I did more or less. I did a little detour for a few years when I I went to St. Louis actually to work for a private school, and I spent a couple of years working for a school. And then, uh, actually, the person that took over the vod of St. Louis after Rabbi Rosen left. Uh, David Jenkins, uh, I, I ended up kind of uh, also getting drafted into the VOD of St. Louis. Mm-hmm. He, had, uh, he had a need for some help over the summer one year. And that, that summer help turned into uh full-time occupation since uh, 1992.
0: Mm, you were a bit older, but no less hungry, I guess.
1: Yeah, something like that.
0: <laughs> okay, great. And now you said, so you've been working with the OU for um several years and you said that you uh, you do a lot of work in fats and oils. So let's just start from the very basic. What does that mean?
1: Well, um uh, people that are uh anybody that makes food has encountered a bottle of oil somewhere in their food making career. You see the grocery stores with the shelves stocked with all the bottles of different oils and um you know those those oils obviously have to come from someplace. So the realm of fats and oils begins with the farm, where crops are raised to uh, produce oil from. Sometimes as a, as a primary crop, but most of the time secondary. Actually, most of the oils that we're familiar with in the supermarkets today: soy oil, canola oil, uh, cottonseed oil.
0: What is canola um, oil?
1: Canola oil is a is derived from a seed. It's uh, It it is a, it it grows on, it it actually, the seed grows on a bush. Um, Most of the canola plants in the northern, uh, in North America are coming from the far northern part of the United States, but most come from Canada. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a bush that grows, oh, probably about four feet high. And it actually flowers with a very cute little yellow flower. And then in flowering season, which is probably in June, you, just see, you can see just fields and fields and fields of yellow flowers. And it, it develops a little pod which grows a seed. The seed itself, the canola seed, is really, if you put it side by side with poppy seeds, you probably couldn't tell the difference. It's, it looks very much like a poppy seed. Uh, it's, a, it's a plant that was developed specifically to grow this seed. The seed happens to have a very high content of oil. So there there's uh, it became a viable source for vegetable oil because the seed has um, something like 40 percent of the seed is oil and it's relatively easy to get out of the seed. So it became a big crop. It, it uh, there may there have been reputedly some health benefits, perhaps for canola versus other types of oils. Uh, that's not my part of the business. I couldn't tell you. Um, it's a, it was originally a European-derived crop. Um, some Canadian researchers were the ones that, that made it popular in North America. Um, in Europe, it's also used extensively uh, other parts of the world. It, has a, it is known in Europe as rapeseed.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And for obvious reasons, it, when translated to English, that name has some rather negative connotations, and therefore they called it canola, Canadian oil. Canola. Oh, I
0: always thought it was like some sort of artificial corn product because nope, nope. okay, you learn something new every day, nope. which is why we're having this conversation. <laughs> okay, so I'm sorry. You were saying that all these oils that you see in the supermarket, whatever the varieties, they have to start somewhere.
1: Right. So these these are all plant-derived oils and you know, so naturally in terms of kosher, that's a that's an obvious advantage because historically going back, you know, se- several decades, a lot of Fats were derived from animal sources, primarily from beef or from pork. So, beef-derived oil is known as um, tallow, and pork-derived oil is known as lard. And historically, tallow and lard were important sources of fats for food production. And you know, there were you know, like for example, pie crusts were were traditionally were always made with with uh, lard and as time went on some of the health detriments of these hard fats were becoming known and there was a move within the industry to get away from some of those hard fats which ironically today with some of the with some of the techniques that have been employed by the scientists to make non-hard fats hard the health benefits of the Vegetable oils may have gotten actually to the point where they were worse than the hard fats to start with.
0: So it would just when you say hard fats, you mean that when you buy oil in the store, it's generally a liquid. liquid but right. but t- uh, tallow and lard are solid. I've never bought either in the store.
1: Yeah, not surprising, because I don't think there is such a thing as kosher for either of them. But uh, yes, so tallow and lard are typically solid at room temperature. Mm -hmm. Um, Technically, that's because there is a a factor within the fat world called saturation, basically refers to the chemical structure of the fat. And a fully saturated fat has a characteristic of being a solid at normal room temperatures. Whereas the fats that are are from, well, the vegetable fats, for example, are not saturated, they're unsaturated fats. And as a result, they're liquid at room temperatures. And each type of oil has a different composition of uh, fat structure. So canola oil, soy oil, corn oil, all have different profiles, olive oil, they all have a different profile of the, the actual components that make up that oil. And those components contribute to the saturation factor of the oil, which determines its characteristic at different temperatures. So if anybody has ever put a bottle or container that has olive oil in it in the refrigerator, you know that at refrigerated temperature, oil, olive oil will become Uh, not necessarily exactly solid, but it will become much more thick and kind of pudding-like at refrigeration temperatures, whereas soybean oil in the refrigerator is still liquid oil. That has to do with the components that are in the oil and how they interact with temperature.
0: Mm -hmm. So just out of curiosity, I don't think it's relevant to kosher, but when you say the different components in the oil, you mean like the the different vegetable components, but is is there an oil that's a pure fat that's more pure, so to speak, or each oil has its own nature?
1: So oils are actually made up of a series of fatty acid compounds. And each type of oil has basically just a different recipe, so to speak, of the fatty acids that are in that oil. So there there are palmitic, oleic, linoleic, there's there's actually a, a series of these fatty acid compounds that are found in oils and the proportion that they're found in the oil determine will determine how that oil behaves mm-hmm. so a uh, an oil that has a larger content of one versus another fatty acid has it de- will determine how that oil behaves in different situations so in, in food processing Certain types of oils are more desirable for certain end results. For example, if you're going to use an oil to fry something in, like if you think about somebody frying donuts, the oil that's used to fry donuts, they want an oil that has stability at the temperature of frying. Because you're going to fry donuts at around 350 or 375 degrees Fahrenheit. So if you use uh, certain oils at that temperature, begin to break down, and they will not function well, and they will, offend, they will become rancid or they'll become spoiled at, at high temperatures. So the type of oil that you use for frying, for example, depends upon the, the characteristic of the oil and how it will behave in the, in the situation you're, you're needing to use it in. If you're baking, the characteristic of the oil affects the products that are being baked. If anybody made cookies and they used uh, a shortening, which is a solid fat to make their cookies with, and if they substituted soybean oil for the shortening, you end up with pancakes, not cookies, because they spread all over the place. Because Mm -hmm. of the characteristic of the fat, it doesn't hold in the baking process. So you end up with, instead of a nice two-inch cookie, you end up with a very, very flat five-inch cookie because Mm -hmm. it just spreads all over the place. So it, that's all characteristic of the oils that are used in in the process.
0: Mm-hmm. I see. Just one more question on that topic. You said the oils will go rancid at high temperatures. Um, what about the smoke point? Is that they have different smoke points as well, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Definitely, absolutely. B- based upon the components in the oil, it will it will start smoking or eventually catch fire at different temperatures. Absolutely. So if you're doing something that requires a high temperature, like frying, You need to use an oil, obviously, that's not going to start smoking at 300 degrees because basically your fryer is going to end up catching on fire. So (laughs) you have to use something that's appropriate for the temperature. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay, so that is basically how oils work from a cooking perspective. But what do you do to make oils kosher? It sounds like these are all plant-based products, and uh, we should really have only very... Very minor concerns. What do you do to make sure these oils are kosher?
1: So, when we're talking about liquid oils, you know the bottles that you buy in the supermarket, from a kosher perspective, in theory at least, there really is almost no concern over the kosher status of a status of liquid oils. So, and and we could kind of talk about a spectrum. But for example, olive oil. When when you're dealing with extra virgin olive oil that's an oil that is pressed out of ripe olives the olives are picked from a tree they're put through a high pressure press the liquid that comes out of the olive itself is a mixture of oil and water and some acid and by allowing it to either settle or spinning off the water you can separate the olive oil from the rest of the component and that is bottled as extra virgin olive oil. There's really nothing to it. It's a very simple extraction. To get the oil out of the olive is just a matter of pressure. There's nothing heated. The bottling of the oil is typically done just directly from the separation of the oil from the, the other water components, and you have almost nothing to worry about from a kosher standpoint.
0: Mm-hmm. You say almost.
1: I don't want to say that there's never any concern because every time you say there's never a concern, somebody out there in the industry figures out some wacky thing to do with their process. Mm -hmm. Uh, With extra virgin olive oil, one of the concerns has been that that the product can be cut with other oils and sold as extra virgin olive oil, even though it really authentically is not. Uh, that's a that's you know an industry issue with the olive oil people that's always that comes up from time to time. This is why on Pesach we actually a lot of agencies on Pesach recommend using only certain brands of extra virgin olive oil because of the concern that it might be cut with other oils. Uh, th- those are those are fairly minor concerns, but they you know nevertheless it's a concern. In most cases in the kosher world we say that extra virgin olive oil is acceptable for kosher without any specific certification. Because the claw or the general principle has always been that that's what it is—it's extra virgin olive oil, and that's all that it is. But you know, there's always a possibility something happens. Mm-hmm. Okay. When it comes to the seed oils, so that that would be oils that are produced from seeds. So soy, technically, it's a bean, but we still call it a seed oil. Soy soy comes from a soybean. Corn for, comes from a kernel of corn. Uh, canola oil comes from the little canola seed. Cottonseed oil comes from the seed of the cotton plant. Safflower comes from a safflower seed. Sunflower oil comes from a sunflower seed. These are all types of what are called seed oils. So, all these different types of seeds contain some portion of oil mm-hmm. in the seed. So, the, the seed will contain typically a starch, it'll contain a shell which contains the seed or holds it together. Uh, Corn is more profound. If anybody ever made popcorn, you know that there's little hard, little like shell things that you see in your popcorn. That's the actual shell of the corn kernel. Uh, So all of the seeds have a shell of some sort in some degree. There's the starch component, which is inside inside of the seed. And then there is what's called the germ of the seed, which is a protein portion of the seed. And that germ also contains a, a some proportion of oil or fat. So in nature, you know, the Abister the made the world in such a way that these seeds are, are self-contained food factories to grow a plant. So the, the germ portion of the seed develops roots and develops the actual structure of the plant. The starch that's in the seed provides food for the germination, for the growth of that seed when it's first planted until it can begin taking nutrition from the soil. And, uh, you know, those are the components that are in seeds. When you, when you take those seeds, you can push the, you can put them through a process of what's known as crushing, which basically is, again, just high pressure exerted on the seeds and that will cause the oil part of the seed to separate from the rest. The pressure will just literally push the oil out of the seed. And uh, this is a little simplified because there's a few other steps involved. But is that something
0: you could do at home? You take your sunflowers and mash them up. Will you be able to extract oil?
1: Um, probably not, because the pressure involved is pretty significant. And nuts at home. You won't really get the oil to come out because the pressure isn't sufficient, but mm-hmm. you will get something that's kind of pasty because you'll release some of the oil, but it won't really separate.
0: Mm-hmm. So this is mixed in on the cellular level?
1: Uh, basically, yes. Okay. So, so under high pressure, you can extract the oil. In reality, though, you can only extract a certain portion of the oil through pressure. And the extraction through pressure is also not all that efficient, and it's also truthfully rather costly because the, the, the equipment and the, the speed at which you can press oil out of things through pressure, uh, the yield that you get is not good. It's not an efficient economical process. So in the food world, they figured out another way to do that, and that is known as solvent extraction. Basically, when you mash up a seed, you can expose it to a solvent, which will effectively force the oil or dissolve the oil out of the other products that are in that seed, and you'll liberate the oil without, without pressure. Uh, so in, in most seed extractions, there is oftentimes a first press where they do extract some of the oil, and then the resulting um, basically, mush that's left over when you press the seed is exposed to a solvent. The solvent forces the rest of the oil out, and the oil can then be separated from the solvent and and start on its process of purification. So, uh, in in most cases, the solvent that's used is a chemical called hexane, which is a petrochemical and which is extraordinarily flammable and explosive, such that uh, companies that use hexane to extract oil have to take extra precautions. Um, if you visit a hexane extraction, for example, you may not—you cannot take a cell phone into the facility. They're concerned that there could be a spark of electrical ch- discharge off of a cell phone. And a spark in a hexane plant would generally result in there not being a hexane plant anymore.
0: Right. I, I've <laughs> had that experience a lot in India. You have to put your right. phone away before you go in. But even though everything's contained in tanks and there's not actually any hexane in the air, they're still very, very concerned about this.
1: Always concerned because hexane is a gas and it can it can escape easily. So they never know if there's any hexane residual or whatever. Yeah. You end up with a big boom.
0: Mm-hmm. Has that ever actually happened at a plant you, you're familiar with?
1: that i'm familiar with on hexane no i, I am familiar with a plant that exploded for another reason but not not because <laughs> of hexane <laughs> but um the uh, i i would imagine that somewhere at some point in time there was a hexane explosion at, mm. in history and they learned their lesson i guess uh-huh. i don't know why why did that plant explode well so uh, there, there's a there's a process called hydrogenation which is no longer uh, really done in the united states because the the government here put up a rule several years ago that does not allow for partially hydrogenated fats. And um, uh, hydrogenation is actually one of the ways that you can take a liquid oil and make it into a more solid. You change the chemical bond structure of the oil and the oil becomes more saturated and it becomes solid at room temperature. Mm-hmm. So, the, so in the, up until like, oh, I don't remember exactly, but say up until around five years ago, if you bought something solid, like a shortening or a margarine, it was made with hydrogenated oil, because that's how you made the oil solid. Mm-hmm. But in any case, the process of hydrogenation is: it takes you take a vegetable oil, like say so you could take, like for example, a soybean oil, and under under some temperature, uh, fairly high temperatures, uh, over three hundred degrees Fahrenheit, you basically can bubble hydrogen gas into the oil. There's a again there's a little bit more to it there's a there's a catalyst involved there's some other chemical things that have to happen but what you can do is you can bubble hydrogen gas through the oil and the 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 oil molecules will pick up hydrogen at an open bond in the oil and it will change the structure of the oil so that it will become solid essentially at room temperature mm-hmm. so it, you have to have hydrogen gas to do this and uh, the the facility that I have been that I was involved with or still involved with actually. So what, what happened there is that they produced hydrogen gas by electrolysis of water. They broke water down into hydrogen and oxygen, captured the hydrogen, they compressed it and they used it for their hydrogenation plant. The hydrogen was stored in a smallish tank on the facility and something at something at the bottom of the tank failed. A, a gasket may have failed, or a motor. They, they think actually it might have been a combination of a seal that leaked and a motor that created a spark, and the hydrogen tank went kaplooey. Mm-hmm. And um, the tank itself it wasn't so big. It was probably... Oh, it was probably about a five or a six foot tall tank and maybe a two foot and three foot in diameter. It wasn't a huge tank, but they said that it actually shot about 500 feet into the air. Oh, my gosh. And but the, the resulting explosion caused a, a pretty significant fire. And uh, it was it was not a not a let's just say that the owner of the facility got that phone call he was not interested in getting.
0: <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so we were, I think, back talking about seed extractions with hexane.
1: Right. So after you perform your extraction through pressure and or with hexane extraction, you end up with an oil which is known as a crude oil. It's not a usable oil at that point. It is a crude oil. Um, If anybody ever purchased, for example, sunflower oil, you know, sunflower oil is this lovely, clear, slightly yellowish oil you can certainly see through when sunflower oil is extracted from the sunflower seed it looks more like tar it is a dark black murky stuff
0: is it sludgy or is it liquid
1: it's still pretty liquid but it is it's a little sludgy but it's liquid but it's very dark and it's and it's it's rather profoundly ugly stuff it's (laughs) not something that you would want to cook with, which which is actually typical of most crude oil. Most crude oils extracted are are not all that pleasant. They're pretty dirty looking. There's a process of refining the oil that becomes necessary in order to get it from the extract of the seed to something that somebody could use in their cooking. And that process generally takes place through two or three steps. It depends on the type of oil as to the steps that are taken, but essentially there are three steps that are used for processing an oil. The first step is known as refining. And what the, what's done is the, the, the raw oil or the crude oil is treated with a caustic material, um, sodium hydroxide usually, a liquid caustic, and it is washed with some water. And it is then run through a centrifuge which spins the mixture, and what happens is that the more heavy components that come out of the seed as part of the extraction will kind of agglomerate or they'll glob together, and they can be separated from the oil portion. And so you end up with a a, a refined oil, still not usable, but – well, I guess technically it is usable, but it's still not a clean – pure oil that somebody would be accustomed to. So what you do is you remove certain solid and semi-solid compounds from the oil. That's the first step of the refining process. Incidentally, that sludge or that that material that's removed from the oil is the basis from which lecithin is produced. So uh, if anybody is looking at ingredient labels, uh, many times you'll see lecithin listed. For example on chocolate you'll almost always see chocolate this lecithin as an ingredient you'll find cocoa lecithin maybe a flavor like vanilla sugar uh, the lecithin is a is a uh, product that allows um, the fats to combine with other ingredients without separation so it's called an emulsifier but uh, that's kind of getting off in a whole other direction here mm-hmm. but uh, but lecithin basically is produced from the byproduct of, of oil refining. Right. So the refined oil is produced. And then the next step of the refining process is called bleaching. And what, what's done is that uh, the, this oil is still actually typically very dark in color. So it's run through a process of bleaching where using certain types of clay literally just from the ground, a specialty types of clay, the oil is passed through the clay under temperature and under pressure conditions and then run through filters. The clay is all removed, and the oil that comes out is now pretty much the clear, clean-looking oil that we're used to seeing in the stores. Now, the, there is one last process that is performed, however, and that is called deodorizing. Because after the refining and the bleaching process, there are still compounds found in the oil, which over ex, with exposure to air will oxidize and will make the oil become rancid uh, or you'll give it very off flavor, off off smell, uh, not something somebody wants to, to use. So... The oil is run through a process of deodorizing where it's, it is introduced into a chamber under significant temperatures, pressures, and steam is injected into the oil. And under the temperature and pressures that are involved in this, in this uh, system, these uh, compounds that are found in the oil at this point are driven out of the oil and they are collected and then um, actually are are often very valuable because one of the things that comes off the seed oils in this process is the basis of making a vitamin E or tocopherol is is the technical name for vitamin E. A lot of tocopherols or vitamin E is is produced from the uh, byproduct of oil deodorizing. There are other vitamin compounds that come off and there are some other things that are useful here as well. But essentially, the, the, um, these, these less desirable components of oil are driven off through this deodorizing process, and the oil that emerges is now a purified, clean oil that's ready for packaging or use in other processes.
0: Oh, wow. So it's like they used to say about the Indians, they use every part of the buffalo, right? Right. So the same. Right
1: same exactly well but when was it when you take a when you take an oil out of a seed you however much you take out of the seed you end up with somewhere between 70 and eighty percent of that amount finished on the other end of the process as finished oil mm-hmm. so the different parts that are taken off so you could look at it as basically loss you know if you start out with a thousand gallons of crude oil you end up with 700 and some gallons of finished oil you've lost Close to 300 gallons in the process. Well, you paid for that seed oil to start with, and so the, utilizing the byproducts is an important way of capturing additional revenue and and making the process viable. Plus, the truth is, when you buy a bottle of oil in the grocery store, you know if you go to the grocery store and you buy a, a, a you know a nice size bottle of oil for three dollars a bottle or whatever it costs, without those byproducts having value, that bottle might be four and a half dollars. Right. It's the, the additional value that's obtained from the process that allows the pricing to stay competitive as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, a, that's, that, that's an interesting point. Okay, so what are the cash risk concerns that would come up at in, in these stages that you just described?
1: Okay, so in a perfect world, this process is essentially kosher neutral. Because you're taking a seed, you're, you're introducing a few rather innocuous chemical ingredients And you're ending up on the other end with a purified oil. So in an ideal world, there's really nothing that goes, there's really nothing to go wrong here. Unfortunately, we don't live in that ideal world. And so there are a few different things that that cause us problems with oil refining. One of the problems is uh, that in many parts of the world there is still the production of animal fats, and animal fats. Are refined in essentially the same exact way that we just talked about vegetable oil refining. The animal fats run through the same type of refining process, and coincidentally, using the same exact equipment, the same type of equipment. And so, in in a number you know number of places around the world, you can have a company that refines um, vegetable oil and also refines tallow or or uh, beef fat rendered beef fat so you end up with a slight kosher issue when you start running non-kosher beef fat through your processing equipment absolutely and we're talking here about a process that involves high temperatures and equipment that has all kinds of specialty in terms of design so you end up you introduce non-kosher. You end up with a whole big problem for the kosher world. There are also
0: which parts of the world um, is there a lot of American tallow being produced or lard?
1: So I I I am personally not aware right now of factories in America that are refining tallow to any commercial extent. Um, I know of some companies in America that process tallow. And I'm sure there's a refinery somewhere that does a full refining on tallow, but not in, not in the kosher world, so not something I've experienced. Mm-hmm. In Central and South America, tallow is still found. There are still refineries that work with tallow, uh, certainly in Central and South America. I, I am told that there are facilities in Europe that are still processing some tallow, and I could not speak to much of the rest of the world. Uh, for well, in in Asia, actually, we know in Asia that there are still tallow refineries operating. Sorry, I forgot about Asia. Um, in in other parts of the world, it, it's probably not as popular as it once was, and uh, but it, it but it's still a factor, and there are still places that process tallow.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so in the in the factories in the U.S. in the kosher world, what are the hot points that you're looking for?
1: So in in U.S. production, the complications typically don't come in from animal fats, but they do come in from producing solids. So um, you have issues that are brought up when you start talking about shortening and margarine, which are fats that are made into solids. So
0: if if we're going to go down that route, maybe you should give us a little background in uh, turning oils into solids in general first?
1: Sure. I, I do want to, before I lose the thought, I do want to actually mention, though, that when, when dealing with all these types of oils, the, um, the marketplace for oils today is not a local market. In other words, when, when companies are working with oils, the source of those oils is not necessarily a local market. When a company in Iowa is processing oil the the seed and the oil that they're working from is not necessarily produced in iowa it may not even be produced in the united states so there is a world market for oils and and the nature of that market is that producers buy and sell oils across international boundaries to large extent so Even though a seed oil might be um, ultimately finished in in terms of processing at a facility in the central United States, and it's a very direct process of refining that oil, that oil may have originated in another country altogether, and it may have been partially processed in another country where there is exposure to non-kosher animal fats. So the it's not exactly a hundred percent so straight that because a, a soybean oil originated in a in a plant in Nebraska that it's automatically a kosher oil. I mean that's probably not a great example because the United States produces a huge amount of soybean and and most soybean oil is domestic in the United States. But uh, but that, but it's a, an example of things that can happen. I see, so um, you
0: now, have to do a lot of tracking from of absolutely okay
1: yes absolutely now. Uh, when it comes to solids, which would be shortenings and one margins. one question
0: then about the liquids: sure. um, Do the industrial applications of these oils need go through all the same refining, or, P, or industrial applications will do use crude oils?
1: No, the industrials have to do the same thing. They they use refined oils. Okay. the The crude oils are not are just plain not usable for any type of significant processing. Mm-hmm. I, I know, like you know, I'm based here in Chicago. And uh, I, there's actually some people here in Chicago that uh, are part of our Russian community who have an affinity for uh, non-refined sunflower oil. I, I guess that that was a thing where, in the part of Russia that they came from. And um, so I, I know that you can buy non-refined sunflower oil in the stores here, but the truth is, uh, I they don't believe me, but it, it's it's semi refined oil because I can tell from looking at it that it's not truly crude oil because mm-hmm. it's not the right color. But whatever. Wow. Um, mm-hmm. there, but so there, So there are some people that I guess still use uh, less processed oils. And there may be something to be said for that, because when you do fulfill this complete process of deodorizing and such, you are removing a lot of of uh, nutrients and um. There, there are definitely beneficial com- components of the oils that are taken out. and so there, so I can understand there's probably you know there's there's probably a movement to use less refined oils where possible. Uh, the downside of that is that they will spoil pretty quickly because as soon as they're exposed to air, they'll start oxidizing. but, uh, but essentially in, in industrial application, the oils that are used are, are all uh, you know refined oils to some extent.
0: Mm-hmm. And also I've seen in some places they do something called winterization.
1: Yes, winterization is a process of removing some fatty acid compounds from the oil because, you know, like we, we spoke about a while back, if you take olive oil, for example, and stick it in the refrigerator, you're going to get a very pasty result. So if you take refined sunflower oil, for example, and you put refined sunflower oil in the refrigerator or perhaps in the freezer, over some time as it chills, there are going to be some wispy white looking uh, kind of globule things that will precipitate out of the oil as it gets cold. So th- those are natural compounds that are in the oil. It's not spoilage, it's not mold or something like that. It's a, it's a natural part of the oil that when it gets cold will solidify and start to show up as little specks or little wisps of, of material in the oil. and consumers. I guess don't like seeing little white wispy things in their oil Mm -hmm. because they associate it with something worse like mold. Uh, So what will happen is that those oils that have a propensity to do this, companies can take those oils and they can put them through a controlled chilling process. So at the factory, they can chill the oil, cause those compounds to precipitate, and then run them through a filter to remove the compounds. And that is called winterization. So it's basically for cold climate areas where the oils may precipitate out some compounds through exposure to you know colder temperatures. So, you know in in southern Florida, winterized oil is probably not all that necessary just because you know typically the temperatures in southern Florida, you know even if a product is sitting on the shelf in a store and the store is not well heated or cooled or whatever the case is. It's just, it's never going to get cold enough for that oil to do anything. But in Duluth, Minnesota, if you had oil shipped in Duluth, Minnesota, and it's sitting in a delivery truck for some hours, and it arrives at a store, it may have precipitated because at, you know, 20 below zero, things happen.
0: Well, that's all for today's episode. Be sure to join us next week for part two of this exciting topic, Margarine and Hard Fats. Subscribe so that you won't miss it. Special thanks to the OU for encouraging Rabbi Smolensky to share his expertise with us. One last thing. Our next upcoming topic is kosher meat with Star K's Rabbi Machir with Moshe Heinemann. I know I have a lot of questions about this topic. If you do too, share them with me at podcast at star-k.org. Thank you for listening to The Kosher Conversation, where we tell the stories behind the symbols. This is your host, Hanania Jacobson, signing off.